Hello and welcome to Top in Tech, a Global Council podcast. This week, we're going to talk about digital taxation. Digital tax is an unusual area of policy in tech in that there is actually an international process. Every week on this podcast, we talk about the fact in tech policy, it's national or EU rules that matter, not international. This is to do with the divisions between the EU and the US and decoupling between China and the US. And generally speaking, international governance of tech is in the too hard to do box. But tax is different. The OECD has led a multilateral process, which in October concluded with a multilateral convention. We have an end of year deadline for initial implementation of this convention. So with a month to go, it's timely to review how this is looking and whether tax will remain the shining light for doing digital regulation at a global level. My name's Conan Darcy. I'm a senior practice director at Global Council. And joining me today is Russell Lamb, who leads on the OECD's negotiations within the GC team here. So Russell, thank you for joining me today. Could you kick off by just giving an overview of the overarching agreement, this so-called BEPS process, and the two pillars that underpin the initiatives moving forward? Sure. So BEPS stands for Base Erosion and Profit Shifting. And essentially, this refers to the exploitation of gaps in the global tax system, where companies can shift their profits to either low or no tax locations. And that can have a number of negative effects. So for businesses, that can lead to unfair competitive advantages. And for countries, that can result in a loss of potential tax revenue. So really what this is about is realigning profit location with value creation. So for example, there could be lots of economic or profit making activity happening within your borders, but you aren't necessarily receiving the right tax benefits from that. And that's a particularly important issue for developing countries that rely heavily on corporate taxation. More generally for taxpayers, there's a kind of general feeling that it undermines faith in the tax system because multinational corporations can essentially legally avoid tax in some instances. So that's the issue and why it's important. And I think to get to the significance of more recent events, it's worth going into a bit of the the history of, of BEPS. So the OECD has been trying to tackle this issue for around about over a decade. Uh, it was first raised by the OECD and the G20 way back in 2012. Um, and they got together and decided, well, tax policy really is a notoriously difficult area to get international consensus in, as it's fundamentally so tied to the principle of sovereignty. It's not just technically complex, but you have to navigate incredibly challenging geopolitical environments as well. That's always been the case, but particularly in, in recent times. So... In about 2015, the OECD and the G20 put together some recommendations on BEPS and they had the first meeting of what they called the Inclusive Framework on BEPS Implementation back in 2016. There's been progress on various fronts over the years, but one of the key sticking points has been this issue of corporate taxation and how to deal with the growth of digital service taxes or DSTs. And so ultimately where that brings us to now is... Uh, an agreement in 2021 by 140 countries uh, on what they called a two-pillar solution. And those two pillars basically ensure that multinationals pay their fair share of tax wherever they operate, 
but it also ensures that they aren't double taxed. So really, it's aimed at ensuring fairness for businesses, citizens, and governments. So to quickly cover those two pillars, pillar one is about modernizing and stabilizing the system and easing trade tensions. And it's split into two parts called amount A and amount B. Amount A concerns the reallocation of profits from markets where multinationals are headquartered to the markets where they earn those revenues. And amount B is about increasing tax certainty while reducing things like compliance costs, administrative costs, and it's really about helping uh, low capacity jurisdictions implement changes. And pillar two concerns uh, a global minimum corporation tax of 15%. So back in 2021, this looked like a major triumph for the multilateral system, particularly getting the US behind the proposal. But after two years of negotiation, hope of an agreement seems to be fading. So while the policy here is quite complex, and while the varying layers of different international agreements are quite complex, the politics is actually quite simple. So I'm looking at a headline here now from June 2023 in The Guardian, which says Amazon's main UK division pays no corporation tax for second year in a row. And that is basically the issue at play here, certainly in Europe. This idea that companies, often American, in the digital economy have been perceived, now it's much more complex than that, but they have been perceived and accused of not paying enough tax and they're undertaxed in other parts of the world where they are making large revenues. And that's basically what this boils down to and why we have this international process. So with that context in mind, Russell, let's jump forward to where we are now. There was a summer deadline for an agreement, but that summer deadline was missed. However, in October, we saw this multilateral convention published. So what is the significance of this text and how does that link to these digital services taxes that you referred to previously? Sure. So over the summer, it perhaps wasn't so much the deadline was missed, but there was a recognition that uh, the global community needed more time to uh, negotiate. So 138 countries signed up to what they called an outcome statement. Uh, and that, that essentially was an agreement to show that a certain level of technical progress had been made in certain areas. And the key aim of that was to, one, give more time, but two, to extend the ban on DSTs. And that's a crucial element, particularly for the US. However, that ban was dependent, as you say, on enough members signing up to a multilateral convention on amount A of pillar one. So that's the reallocation of, of taxing rights. And essentially what that is, is an agreement on how to implement and set various thresholds for what profit can be taxed. So the deal was that if enough members signed up to the text of that MLC, the Multilateral Convention, by the end of the year, 2023, the ban on DSTs would extend until the end of 2024. So that would again give more negotiating time. And in this case, enough members means 30 jurisdictions which comprise 60% of all the multinationals that would then fall under the new rules. Without meeting that threshold, theoretically, countries would then be able to implement their own unilateral digital service taxes. And so the debate there is, while 
implementing DSTs might seem beneficial for individual countries in terms of collecting revenue from those big digital technology companies, like you say, that then creates a tricky environment for businesses who then have to navigate these different regimes. And then also geopolitics, like you say, comes into play about who owns these companies, where their tax is going, and then that could feed into a race to a bottom, race to the bottom rather, which is what we're trying to avoid through the BEPS process. Exactly. So whereas I said before, the politics of this is very simple. I also think the geopolitics of this is very simple. European countries have been feeling that companies are undertaxed in their jurisdictions largely American. However, America, the US, believes that these DSTs that you're talking about actually go against international tax law and international tax conventions and therefore has tried to push those countries away from this unilateral national approach to DSTs into an international agreement, hence where we are today. It's really important to understand what is the role of the US at the moment, where do they stand and what are the incentives there for moving forward with the agreement or not? So, yeah, the, the US is absolutely critical to not only extending the ban on DSTs, but to the, the whole process. And back when this uh, two-pillar solution was backed in 2021, it was seen as a really big deal that the US was a part of it. Obviously, as you say, home to a lot of the big tech companies that we can think of. All the G20 countries backed the deal then, uh, and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen hailed it as a, a once-in-a-generation accomplishment for economic diplomacy, so quite quite a lofty, lofty way to look at things. But it was really seen that the Biden administration breathed new life into the process that had been going on for, for several years. Uh, but I say the internal politics is a bit trickier, and there isn't necessarily the domestic support. Um, and Treasury and Congress haven't really been in in lockstep. So in the aftermath of, of the US backing the deal, there was a lot of blowback, particularly from congressional Republicans um, who wanted to have been consulted more uh, in that decision to back the deal in, in 2021. And kind of as you've alluded to earlier, Conan, there is a bit of underlying tension between the US and, and Europe, particularly on the Republican side of the aisle, um, that Pillar 1 in particular targets US firms unfairly. And th this process or part of this process is motivated a little bit by some kind of underlying jealousy of, uh, or European jealousy rather, of US tech hegemony. I think also on the US domestic environment, it's important to note that any changes to international tax treaties require a 60-vote supermajority in the Senate. So politically speaking, passing changes, passing a deal is really, really challenging for the Biden administration, particularly with the current political realities. So the US has uh, by far the largest share of companies who are going to be affected by these changes or would be affected by these changes. So it has a lot of skin in the game in terms of avoiding DSTs and finding some sort of, of international solution. However, Critically for the US, and recently Janet Yellen said that the US would not be in a position to sign the MLC this year. She talked about how important this deal was, how important this treaty was, and therefore how it was important for it to go to the American public, to Congress, and to the business community. So that's in part what has motivated uh, the US Treasury to open a consultation to the public, to US businesses, uh, that's open until the 11th of December. 
Again, they've reiterated that they do stand behind the negotiations and stand behind the process, but that they want more input from the businesses who would be affected by it. So there's a way potentially of seeing this as a slightly more restrained approach, taking heed from some of that previous congressional blowback in 2021, perhaps taking note of the fact that the uh, the, the lack of route through Congress has been an elephant in the room throughout the OECD negotiations until now. So this sounds very significant, the statement by Yellen, particularly when putting context of what you were saying earlier, that there is this threshold that needs to be met by the end of the year. So Russell, what does this all mean for the digital services taxes globally? And where do other countries stand in this debate? It's it's a really good question. And uh, that indication that the US won't sign raises this prospect that DSTs could reemerge emerge in, in 2024 unless some sort of a different agreement or arrangement is reached by, by all the parties involved. So no one in the US wants a complex DST regime whereby businesses have to navigate this really difficult uh, patchwork environment. And even senior Republicans have, have come out and said this. So Senator Mike Crapo, who is the ranking member on the Senate Finance Committee and who was a big part of the uh, previous objections from congressional Republicans, uh, has come out and said that we need to ensure that the OECD cure is better than the DST disease. And I think that wording there of DST disease is really, really significant. And I think what that shows us is in principle, the US is still on board for an international agreement and is very much against the proliferation of DSTs. And the issue is more so that there just isn't agreement or there isn't a political reality at the moment where we can get anything passed. The consultation should help that and could start to show what you what the US would want or what businesses would need in order to be able to ever implement such an agreement. In terms of other countries, there has been some underlying tension between the US and Canada unfolding in recent months. So Canada has voiced its desire for a global consensus, but it didn't sign up to that summer outcome statement. The Canadian position has been that they've been missing out on potential revenue. So while the DST ban has been in place ever since the two-pillar solution was agreed, those countries that had DSTs already in place uh, have been able to continue collecting revenue. So Canada feels that it's been in missing out. Particularly since the publication of the text of the MLC, the Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister, Christia Freeland, has come under increasingly direct pressure from the US government as well as uh, US businesses and Canadian businesses to, to shelve those proposals. Uh, and the US TRO, the Trade Representatives Office, has been pretty explicit and clear that retaliatory sanctions would be considered should Canada proceed with, with that DST. And that's a threat that should be taken seriously um, because France, back in 2020, narrowly avoided a raft of sanctions um, related to imposing a DST. And that was a key part, uh, a key negotiation rather, that led in part to the DST ban being considered as part of the agreement for the two-pillar solution in 2021. However, um, the pushback on DSTs has been very much bipartisan in the US. And in Canada's full economic statement last week, it appears to have dropped wording on the implementation date of the DST. So there's still a lot of language in there about the intent to move forward with legislation that would allow for a DST. The original implementation date of the 1st of January 2024 uh, is no longer there. So that potentially gives a little bit more wiggle room. 
Outside of the US, Sri Lanka emerged as a key opposing voice in the summer. Again, it didn't sign up to the outcome statement and interestingly gained support for this position from some world-renowned economists like Joseph Stiglitz and Jayati Ghosh, who argued that Sri Lanka and potentially other developing countries might benefit more directly from a simple DST. And that's the tension that exists for a lot of developing countries. Uh, in many cases, the primary concern is raising revenue rather than perhaps creating the smoothest international operating environment for businesses. So there's long been some trepidation throughout the BEPS process to ensure uh, that developing countries are really getting a good enough deal that they couldn't get unilaterally. And they've been looking for a kind of clearer voice. And that's something that India was pushing through its G20 presidency, but now increasingly developing countries are looking towards the UN. So it sounds like, Russell, it, the process is it, it is coming to a crunch point, perhaps not yet, but quite soon, that a lot hinges on whether the US signs or doesn't sign. But even if the US doesn't sign, you can expect them to still be applying pressure on countries like Canada, or indeed if European countries look to resurrect uh, moribund uh, DSTs, or indeed if there's a European Union-wide DST, or indeed in other countries like around the world, in the developing world like you've talked about. So the crisis is potentially coming, but it's not necessarily coming right now in the next four to five weeks. But if the process does unravel, let's just hypothetically, let's go into that scenario. Can you just conclude this discussion by taking us through what is the timing of that likely to be? And you mentioned the UN there. How does that come into play? So if we get to the end of the year and we haven't reached the required threshold for the MLC, there's no other agreement. It's a bit of an unknown for everyone. We could end up in that space, as you say, where we see a proliferation of DSTs and potentially equivalent retaliatory sanctions. If the US consultation proves that it needs certain changes domestically, it's unclear whether those would then be acceptable to the international community or how those would feed into negotiations going forward or what shape any future negotiations might take. In terms of the UN, as I say, developing countries have long been pushing for the UN to have more of a role and for a UN-led process. And the drive behind that is for developing countries to have more agenda-setting power when it comes to, to global tax. And interestingly, they've got an ally in Antonio Guterres, who has previously been critical of BEPS for not adequately addressing the needs uh, and priorities of developing countries. So the UN itself is also looking to take more of an enhanced role going forward. And back in August of this year, it released a report which contained a few different options for how it might take more of a role going forward, ranging from legally binding and non-legally binding agreements to facilitating other forms of international cooperation. Again, interestingly, last week, 125 developing countries, or mostly developing countries rather, backed the draft UN resolution that was proposed by Nigeria. And that draft resolution called for a broader framework convention on international tax cooperation. So again, pushing for more of a voice for developing countries. Perhaps unsurprisingly, a lot of the leaders in the OECD process or key countries in the OECD process like the UK, the US, Germany, Japan, were among 48 countries that opposed the motion. And there are a few abstentions from countries such as Mexico that have long tried to sort of straddle both camps in aligning with the US, but also aligning with other middle income countries and developing countries. But again, what this means going forward is a bit unclear. 
There's an optimistic view that the UN will work closely with the OECD going forward, that it will try and be a beacon for developing countries and help them to gain more of a voice and gain some of that agenda setting power. But it's it's unclear of exactly how this would, would work in practice. I think on a, a final kind of closing note, the other thing to add is that any UN process is going to be incredibly slow. So I think what's quite interesting here, Russell, then is if this does unravel through the course of next year, it will have a major impact on the domestic agendas of new governments or new administrations coming in. So if you look at, say, the UK next year, the Labour Party, which is currently leading in the polls, has played down ambitions to go more ambitious on things like digital services taxes or digital sales taxes, partly because of this ongoing process at an international level. That whole agenda could reopen, particularly when the UK is facing a big fiscal squeeze. So that debate will sort of play into each other if it unravels next year. Likewise, if you're the next European Commission coming in the second half of next year, suddenly, if the OECD process unravels, you have a big call to take on whether you move forward with an EU-level DST, which is quite a consequential and controversial decision, will have a reaction from the US and could colour the first year or so of that new commission um, when they perhaps would like to focus on potentially other policy priorities. So thank you very much for taking us through that, Russell. So for those who are listening on the line, We'll keep following this, but if you do want to have a further conversation about this, do um, do get in touch. You can find the details of Russell's, Russell and other colleagues on the podcast notes or on the GC website at www.global-council.com. Thanks for listening and hope you join next week. Bye-bye.